That is 510-845-9092. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Stay with us as we bring you a special edition of Cover to Cover. Weekday broadcast Oops. of Book Talk. Conversations with authors. All right. Well, so much for cueing stuff. It's so special that we uh, kind of missed the cue there. But nonetheless, I'm Amelia Gonzalez, and I'm welcoming you to Cover to Cover. Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone is taking a break during this fun drive, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're bringing you the voice of Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut, whose dark comic talent and urgent moral vision in novels such as Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, and God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, caught the temper of his times and the imagination of a generation. He died in Manhattan earlier this year on April 11th. Kurt Vonnegut wrote plays, essays, and short fiction, but it was his novels that became classics of the American counterculture, making him a literary idol. His first novel was Player Piano, published in 1952, that was a satire on corporate life. Player Piano was followed in 1959 by The Sirens of Titan, a science fiction novel featuring the Church of God of the Utterly Indifferent. In 1961, he published Mother Night, involving an American writer awaiting trial in Israel on charges of war crimes in Nazi Germany. Like Slaughterhouse-Five in 72 and a number of other Vonnegut novels, Mother Night was adapted for film in 1996. Mr. Vonnegut published Cat's Cradle in 1963. Though it initially sold about 500 copies, it is widely read today in high school English classes. Kurt Vonnegut shed the label of science fiction writer as a science fiction writer with Slaughterhouse-Five. It tells the story of Billy Pilgrim, a chaplain's assistant who discovers the horror of war. The novel also featured a signature Vonnegut phrase, one of the many phrases that run through Mr. Vonnegut's books, So It Goes, was that phrase, and it became a catchphrase for opponents of the Vietnam War. Slaughterhouse-Five reached number one on bestseller lists, making Mr. Vonnegut a cult hero. Some schools and libraries have banned it because of its sexual content, rough language, and scenes of violence. After the book was published, Mr. Vonnegut went into a severe depression and vowed never to write another novel. Forsaking novels, Mr. Vonnegut decided to become a playwright. His first effort, Happy Birthday, Wanda June, opened off Broadway in 1970 to mixed reviews. Mr. Vonnegut returned to novels with Breakfast of Champions or Goodbye Blue Monday in 1973, calling it a tale of a meeting of two lonesome, skinny, fairly old white men on a planet which was dying fast. In 1997, Mr. Vonnegut published Time Wake, a tale of the millennium in which a wrinkle in space-time compels the world to relive the 1990s, if you can imagine that. Mr. Vonnegut said in the prologue to Time Wake that it would be his last novel, and so it was. His last book in 2005 was a collection of biographical essays, A Man Without a Country. It, too, was a bestseller. It concluded with a poem written by Mr. Vonnegut called Requiem, which was with these closing lines. When the last living thing has died on account of us, how poetical it would be if Earth could say, in a voice floating up, Perhaps from the floor of the Grand Canyon, it is done. People did not like it here. 
The following is a snapshot of a candid Kurt Vonnegut in 1970 as he speaks to a class in, at the New York University. Pacific Archives has produced this treasure that we're able to bring to you today as well as share as a thank you gift for you. So let's go to 1970 with Kurt Vonnegut. Stay with us. creepy way to keep track of it is what is being spent on space and I don't know really what it means but for every thousand people killed in Vietnam we spend a billion dollars on the space program so all you need is one figure to find the other uh, I thought I would cover absolutely everything in the catalog there is it is the experience of being alive in America is one of them but then it says it's promised that I will cover social criticism, and I do criticize society because I'm very uncomfortable in it. Uh, it's politics, as I am a uh, Unitarian. I, uh, <laughs> it's about identity. It mentions the problem of the problem of the author and identity, which is a very interesting subject which people don't understand, is that the author's life is a quest and so is everybody else's, but the author's, author's life is a more overt quest, see, and he doesn't know what he's going to find. And he promises to find things. And I can remember when Salinger was uh, publishing serially in the New Yorker, people were saying, where is he going? And they would try to find him and say, you know, where are you going? What are you going to find? Uh, we'd like to know. Uh, well, he didn't know. And he finally uh, came back essentially to his first story, I guess. is a banana fish story. But he made a full circle. But that's a quest. As a knight doesn't know where he's going unless the whole thing is rigged in the first place. And I admire tremendously the Nobel Prize having gone to Samuel Beckett, who said there's nothing to find. Because there isn't, you know, that's true. Uh, about race is I am white, and uh, I've been in the publishing business one way or another for 20 years, so all my friends are Jews, every one of them. <laughs> Is the city? I don't. I don't live in one. I live on Cape Cod. About war, these are things that are listed in your catalog. That's why. They... <laughs> I. I like. I like the war, and and one thing that is uh, very seldom said was that the infantry feels good. It really does. It, it just feels awfully good, and uh, I liked it. And in one of my books, I said, "Man is an infantry animal," and he is. And one thing about war is, you know, you get so excited because there's so much noise and everything, it, it doesn't hurt for a while. <laughs> but anyway, generally, war doesn't hurt. It just looks like it ought to. Uh, about the American dream, it has come true for me. I made $71,000 this year, and that... <laughs> And as I understand it, that is the American dream, I think. <laughs> and if that wasn't, there's a little dab of whipped cream on top, which is, I am to be the commencement speaker at Bennington College. 
All right, the experience of being alive in America. A lot of people think I speak English awfully good for somebody who was born in Germany. Uh, people frequently comment on how good my English is. Well, my great-grandfather was born in the United States, and we're as patriotic as anybody. God damn it, we've been over, over here helping to build a country. Uh, is that the places I have been alive in America are... Indianapolis, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois... Connected in New York and Cape Cod and Iowa City, Iowa. And Norman Mailer seems like a regional writer to me. I have, I have never. Interestingly enough, Joseph Heller does not, and neither does Philip Roth. I left Indianapolis following puberty. When I went into the arts, uh, it was a perfectly ordinary thing to do. It wasn't parent bopping. You know, it, it often is a terrible insult to some family if, if one of the kids turns out to be an artist, you know. And that's one way to, to uh, really shake up a family if you haven't got nerve enough to turn into a homosexual. <laughs> and you can... And my father and my grandfather were not only architects, but they were painters in Indianapolis, and they were pretty good. Uh, but they were extremely uncomfortable out there because there is a strong feeling in the Middle West that the artist is not pulling his own weight, no matter how hard he may work, is that the other people are doing the real stuff. And, uh, you know, when the men out there at parties get together to talk to the men while you, you find the architect talking to the women, which isn't too bad, really, when you think about it. It's all right. Now, here comes a rather intimate part, and I'm not kidding, it's intimate, as I used to keep it a big secret, and I used to have awful guilt feelings whenever uh, my six publishers' copies of a new book came. I couldn't open the damn thing, and I would try to figure out without the help of experts. It's why I felt so sick about this, and I think I figured it out because the message I was getting was, you told, you told, you told in that book. Well, the awful, the awful secret is that uh, my mother was crazy toward the end and we kept this a secret. She was all right. Uh, during the daytime, uh, she's dead now, see? And I, I finally figured out uh, the dead people don't care what you say about them. It's okay. And also I'm her son, you know, so she wouldn't knock me. I've heard that uh, a writer is lucky because he cures himself every day uh, with his work. And that's right, except that I cured myself, not that, it, not that the book was important to anybody else, but the last book, Slaughterhouse-Five, was important to me for some reason, which remains uncoded. Uh, I'm turned off now. As I, I'm not strongly motivated to write another book. Another crazy thing happened. I changed from right-handed to left-handed. And I called my brother about this, and I said, Jesus, I never heard this about, you know, maybe I was left-handed, and he's ten years older than I am. He said, yeah, you are ambidextrous. Well, after I finished that book and got $71,000, I turned into a southpaw. <laughs> As my relatives in Indianapolis 
don't like the dirty words in my book, and they think I do that because if you put a dirty word in a book, these people will buy a lot more copies because it's so exciting to certain low types of people. <laughs> Is my mother-in-law was with me for the last two weeks, and uh, I finally got her to talk about it some, and it was very unpleasant. She had told me this. It brought messages from other relatives that it wasn't necessary to put dirty words in the book and this poor old lady she's very nice uh, I finally pinned her down is she had never said these words in her life and I finally got her to admit uh, to distinguish and I found out that is all right maybe but you should never say and I've been <laughs> I've been thinking about that ever since Is I haven't I haven't been completely idle uh, since 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 uh, completing my book uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, what I did is, and I would like to. Uh, this is there's news being made tonight because I haven't announced this before publicly, and one reason I want to announce it is to establish you uh, put you in condition to testify that this is actually a first for me and that you heard about this on November, what is this, the 6th? I think, see, now this story hasn't been published yet, but the story is written and accepted and everything. I think I am the first person to use the word in a title. I have, I have, I have written a story called The Big Space, and it's a, it's a, it's, it's about this big, uh, <laughs> see what it is, it's, it's about the end of the world, is the, uh, and it's about a couple living on the edge of Lake Erie there. And the... All they left are lampreys and, uh, uh, and human beings. And they're turning into man-eating lampreys. And they, uh, the space program now has built this enormous sh spaceship which they're going to send fire at the Andromeda Galaxy, which is two million light years away and the hope is that human life will somewhere go on because obviously the earth is exhausted and the name of this spaceship which is an enormous thing is Arthur C. Clarke and it's got a big warhead on it filled with sperm you see and they're they're They are firing this thing out there, hoping it'll hit something, you see, and life... I came here with a paranoid announcement. I was going to say that uh, I have been... I have appeared in the New York Review of Books only once in a paid ad. And uh, in the introduction, I learned... That I had been mentioned. I was so pissed off at the thing. I uh, stopped reading it and assumed they never would mention me. Uh, 
that there's... Uh, I have a friend, David Heyman, who's a critic out at the University of Iowa, and he's a Celine scholar, and he says that you probably can't be an important artist if you are not a paranoid. And there are reasons for this. This is not uh, a joke or anything. He really means it. And the thing is, in order to sit alone and work all day long, you must overreact. You must be a terrible overreactor, and you're sitting there doing what paranoids do, is putting together clues, making them add up, you know. <laughs> putting the fact that they put me into room 471, you know, and uh, what does that mean and everything? Well, nothing means anything, as I said, and as Beckett says, except there is this, the artist makes his living by pretending, by putting it in a meaningful hole, though no such holes exist, and it takes a paranoid mind to do this, and you need paranoia for energy, too. You must be terribly worried and uh, secretly full of hate. Er, one time I spoke to the press association, college press association, or some damn thing, and the speech obviously bombed. And I said, what the hell was the matter? And they said, well, we've gotten you out here to moralize, which is an old-fashioned word. So I moralize every time now. As I didn't really, you know, it's like asking, we had expected you to play the dulcimer or the sack butt. Or, uh, just, so it's some obscure, medieval thing they'd hoped me to do. But anyway, so I do moralize, and I tell people is don't kill. Don't kill even in self-defense. Don't work on killing machines, is don't litter, and don't take more than you need. <laughs> and know you are going to die and think about it. And the reason I put that in there is that uh, Slaughterhouse-Five is about to, how badly uh, American prisoners of war behaved in the Second World War and again in the uh, Korean War. As they let each other die, they were filthy, they wouldn't wash. Uh, and this was quite startling, as the other prisoners of war all survived much better than the Americans do. And so I reported this in my novel, and I heard from a lot of guys who had been in prison at the same time I was, who had seen this, and uh, one guy said that the people he'd seen who had survived best were fundamentalists, who, and he supposed this was because they were used to the idea of death at coming to you at any time in a state of rest. And, of course, that's what prison is, is you're sitting there waiting. And what many people found demoralizing and finally shattering was that death could come at any time as without any romance or excitement or anything else. And the fundamentalist knows at any moment he may die and God will take him back to heaven. And uh, this has been told to him, and it isn't told to most of us. So let me tell you, you are going to die and if you think about it from time to time, I, I think it uh, would probably make you braver in jail. <laughs> I was thinking about the usefulness of love. Uh, I, my favorite poem, or, you know, the only poem I know, that's why it's a favorite one. <laughs> Is a William Blake thing. The angel that presided o'er my birth said, Little creature born of joy and mirth, go love without the help of anything on earth. Go love without the help on anything of earth. Is, on earth is nobody, nothing. Is, there's no reason why you should love. But go do it anyway, see, and don't look for reasons. And that's what you do, too, is, is writing schools are foolish. Is, again, 
go right without the help of anything on earth is how important my books are, are or anybody's books are I don't know I don't think they're terribly important I think that they uh, make people contented during the period they're reading them and uh, this is something this is worth something is to take care of somebody for a couple of hours uh, I think about getting through the Great Depression and with my crazy mother and all that it was Laurel and Hardy and W.C. Fields as a word of honor with the my life as they sustained me uh, thoroughly and uh, you will find people who are actually comforting millions it, it's not within Nixon's power to do this, for instance. <laughs> but it's, it is it is within the Beatles' power. And uh, there will always be magic entertainers who will comfort people some uh, during uh, the Job story that all our lives are. And for this reason, I honor my own profession. We are entertainers. Don't do a whole lot, but something. As I'm charmed to see people dressing in order to entertain each other is to uh, behave in ways, silly ways, to cheer each other up as people are cheering up strangers by dopey little tricks that don't, really don't take much talent and life can become much more uh, bearable on that account. And... Uh, it isn't very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut concluded his talk by literally pulling a bunch of yellow flowers from his sleeve. Kurt Vonnegut pulling flowers from his sleeve to remind us of, well, his humility and his very candid way of telling us of the entertainer that he saw himself as. Kurt Vonnegut speaking at the New York University uh, to a group of students back in 1970, November 6th. This was produced by WBAI originally and has been uh, digitized by the Pacifica Archives. These are the type of treasures that the Pacifica Archives has and that uh, KPFA and Pacifica has been able to collect throughout the years. I'm Amelia Gonzalez here. Uh, Jennifer Stone will be back next, uh, a couple of weeks from today. In the meantime, we are in the second week of our fund drive and we are appealing to you, asking you to support us financially, to sustain us so that we could continue bringing you these treasures that we have and also to continue to support the arts programming that we bring you every day, Monday through Friday, here at 3 o'clock. Again, you can get this wonderful gift by the Pacifica Archives and KPFA if you call in with your $60 pledge and you get to have the full two-CD set of the conversation with Kurt Vonnegut back in 1970. A tremendous treasure for yours. Uh, as you heard him, he's very candid. There's a lot of stuff I was um, not able to air for you um, due to his... Uh, <laughs> his nonconformity to the FCC standards, but it is yours unedited if you call now 1-800-439-5732 
or within the Five and Dime, 848-5732. Or if you're listening to us online, hit the support link on the right-hand side, and you could um, pledge your support that way very securely and very fast. However um, you would like to do it, it really is important that you do do it. We are, again, hoping to end next uh, next Wednesday, and uh, we are trying to keep that commitment, but we really do need your commitment and your commitment to us to keep us alive here at KPFA. And that could happen if you call right now, 1-800-439-5732. And I'm very, very uh, happy to be able to offer you this wonderful treasure, Kurt Vonnegut speaking at New York University on November 6, 1970. Yours for the asking if you call now. Again, you hear him talking a little bit about the title of um, his uh, story that he had recently written. Kurt Vonnegut was an amazing person. Uh, As you know, he had a plethora of books that he wrote. He was known for his science fiction. He was known for critiquing society. He was also an amazing artist. Artist. Uh, he uh, did a lot of a lot of uh, prints. Uh, he talked. If unfortunately, one of the parts that you did not hear was him talking about his parents, his grandfather and his father being uh, artists as well, painters and uh, architects and painters, and how um, and how frivolous that seemed in Kansas while they lived there. A lot, a lot is said about his life, and uh, you know he. Uh, you know, he had a difficult time in the 80s, and uh, just a lot of the writing reflects what he was going through. And this particular speech is a wonderful speech. You hear him with his humor. It just really made me laugh as I was editing it. And it's a great treasure. And I know that if you've got kids in high school that have had a little glimpse of his work, this is a wonderful gift to give them, to give them the... Um, the uh, a reflection of who who this uh, who this author was, who this man was, and uh, something t- for them to enjoy in its entirety. One eight hundred four three nine five seven three two eight four eight five seven three two. You know, we come to you with this little half an hour of a break of a lot of talk uh, and not music, giving you the arts, and I hope that you take it and that you appreciate it and that you're able to support it today. 1-800-439-5732 is a number to call. With your $60 pledge, you get our thank you gift that we are offering for the next few minutes, actually only like three minutes, uh, that we are offering, and that is Kurt Vonnegut speaking during um, an NYU student. Um, he was invited as a guest lecturer, and you hear him talking about all of his um, life. You didn't get a whole lot of that. We're talking about over a uh, two CD set. It's over two hours of programming that you get for a $60 pledge. Won't you join the three people that are on the phone? Thank you so much for calling in. We need a few more in order to be able to get closer to our goal, in order to be able to bring you the programming that we do for the next few months. 1-800-439-5732. Area code 510. If you are locally here, if you're in Berkeley, Oakland, Albany, uh, San Leandro, uh, El Cerrito, and you're in the Five and Dime, feel free to call locally, 848-5732. If you're listening to us online, by all, me- by all means, hit the support link. 
$60 is $5 a month if you do our sustainer uh, program. And that is a wonderful way that gives us steady income throughout the months, throughout our lean months, and helps us out regularly. You might consider that, and it's pain, painless for you in terms of uh, getting a, the monthly deduction. You can explore those possibilities with our phone volunteers that are waiting for your call. Many thanks to that fourth caller. We need a few more. one 800 439 5732 if you're in San Francisco if you're in Marin if you're listening to us in Marin City Sausalito uh, what am I thinking of a, a lot of the places that called in earlier Guerneville and if you're listening to us uh, down in San Jose wherever it is that you are feel free to call 1-800-439-5732 we are short running out of time let me remind you that uh, there is more special programming coming up at 4 o'clock Hard Knock Radio is going to have Chuck D and Dave Zirin talking about the legacy of Muhammad Ali that's coming up at 4 o'clock right now we need you to go to the phone and pledge your support coming up in just a minute is going to be of F. FSRN, that's what we call it in-house. That's Free Speech Radio News bringing you the news here at KPFA. Without further ado, thank you so much for calling in. Let me thank our food donors today and let me thank our volunteers as they are taking your calls. In the meantime, let me thank the donors, Bobby G's, Pizzeria, Other Avenues Co-op, Whole Foods, The Bake Shop, Numi Tea, Pea Berries Coffee and Tea. Thank you so much. And thank you for calling in and pledging your support. Coming up is FSRN. Stay with us. The next meeting of KPFA's local station board is this Saturday, May 19th at 11 a.m. at the Freight and Salvage Coffee House in Berkeley. The Freight and Salvage Coffee House is located at 1111 Addison Street.